Welcome to Straight Talk from the Sober Chicks. This is Liz Riskel-Jorgensen. Excited to be uh, bringing you another podcast today with my dear friend and colleague, Sarah Allen Benton. I am honored to be here today having some straight talk with Liz Jorgensen. Today's topic is going to be our favorite. It's about women. Women in recovery, women getting into treatment, special issues for women once we're in treatment and recovery. Challenges that come up that are unique to women. And, you know, there are, and I think through the years, there's been an increase in women with addictive issues. Uh, I think in the, you know, years ago, um, people that were getting help were, you know, primarily male. But at this point, I, women are catching up. I guess there are some things we want to catch up with in life and some things that we don't. But sadly, mm-hmm. women are. Yeah, unfortunately, the college level, we know that to be true, that young women are binge drinking at almost the same rate, depending on the, mm-hmm. the area and the demographics as young men. And obviously, since we do know there's a genetic component to our addictive disorders, the more young people, the more young women engage in binge drinking and other drug use, the more we'll cross the threshold to addiction. And I'm a person in long-term recovery. Um, 29 years I've been in recovery. And I do believe, even though women have many issues of, of equality and we've moved forward progressively in society, I think there's still a lot more shame connected mm-hmm. to women abusing substances, mm-hmm. women dropping responsibilities, women have much more internal shame about mm-hmm. about those issues. And I don't know, what do you think, Sarah? I think it's still a barrier for women to say, I need help. I think women could say, like, I'm depressed or I have, I'm, have anxiety, but to say, like, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, I'm a prescription drug addict, I think... Well, I, I think it's been found, there's actually a research study about women going into primary care doctor's offices that are of a, a certain socioeconomic class or have certain type of insurance that um, physicians will actually overlook them as being potential um, alcoholics or addicts uh, and maybe not ask the necessary questions. So mm-hmm. some of it is that we have back to, you know, sort of the huge point of my the work I've done is around the stereotypes of alcoholics and I think that we still have the idea of the old man bum on the street alcoholic and so we don't associate um, you know a mom a stay-at-home mom as being possibly alcoholic or a successful businesswoman um, people have actually said to me you don't look like an alcoholic and I was like thanking them for that because it sort of proved my whole point is what does an alcoholic look like, you know? And that's not to the advantage of, of women in terms of getting help. People not taking it as seriously, um, not believing it, the secondary denial that happens with loved ones, with coworkers, with family, with healthcare workers. Oh, I totally, I have seen that so many times leading almost to tragic, you know, mm-hmm. deaths because people just... The minimization. They minimize so much more. And I also feel like and you've written about this in The High-Functioning Alcoholic, which a little plug for my dear friend's book. But I feel like for high-functioning women to be able to say, I need this help, might even be more difficult sometimes than for men because you have a lot more to lose if, if you're facing some discrimination. Like I've treated female physicians and male physicians. I mean, small sample, but I think the women have so much more terror and fear about that part of their suffering being known. Um, I don't know, men are a little bit more pragmatic, like, oh, I have this illness, okay, now what do I have to do about it? Women with the guilt, and especially the the fear of, of their privacy being lost socially, I think it's a real issue. And, it, and I think there's there's twofold. There's the, the 
mom that's at home that feels like fear of admitting that they have an addictive issue because of, you know, um, you know, Department of Social Services getting involvement or mm-hmm. just feeling like a failure as a mom and judging themselves and, and all of that. But then there's also the, you know, um, professional woman who's pushed forward in a particular field and already feels at a disadvantage on some level and then doesn't want to admit yeah. that they have, quote unquote, a weakness. I've, um, I have, you know, actual facts around this in terms of, you know, there's um, different states have physicians and dental support um, for impaired physicians and dentists and a majority of the people that reach out, whether it's because their license is in jeopardy or out of their own willingness, is mainly men. I mean, mm-hmm. they, it's actually really hard to even count the the women in, um, in particularly in Massachusetts, who are reaching out. And there is actually um, we're a almost fifty percent of, of physicians are women now, th- right? And right. the thought of looking at why why is it that you know more men are actually willing to to reach out and initiate that help in such professions, and that's I, I think it ties back to some of the themes that you're talking about. Well, you know what I wonder too. I was sitting this morning thinking about. I was talking about this topic and I was thinking, in our culture, I mean, think of movies, etc. And, and music, it's, we still see drunken men as funny. And we see drunken exploits of men as entertainment. I don't, but... but Have you seen Trainwreck? I did see it this weekend, sorry. All right, well, maybe that's that was barrier funny. broken for women. But is she an alcoholic in that movie? No, I think they're no. really displaying her to be more of a problem drinker who's just having problem like kind of like a quarter-life crisis. Like a quarter-life crisis. But in any event, and maybe that's changing, but maybe, I mean, I don't know. But I think like that's part of why a man can say, oh, yeah, I've had these crazy exploits, but now it's over the top and now I'm ready for help. Where women, you're not allowed to have any crazy exploits. You're not allowed to like, yes, especially high-functioning professional women, you can't take one step out of line, right? You just have right? to keep it separate. Exactly. You, have to keep you just got to learn how to compartmentalize. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> let me ask you something, because you and I run a really fun group, the women, Women's Recovery Group, and I feel like when women get together to support each other's treatment and recovery, it's so incredibly powerful. Mm. So there may be a lot of barriers keeping us out of treatment, but, I mean, I've run co-ed groups. I've actually co-led men's groups, but something about running women's groups, women come together and just share in such a way that immediately dissolves shame. Mm. And I, I mean, women tend to, to be very social anyway, but many of the women that we treat have been socially isolated because mm-hmm. of their drinking and really have gone kind of under cover for a long period of time. And I just find, and I really encourage anyone listening who's thinking of getting their own help, research really supports single sex treatment for women. Um, that women having at least part of their treatment being in all women's environment is extremely helpful. Even gay, you know, lesbian women, it's it's still being around the... So it's not the sexuality piece, it's the gender piece. Mm. Being with other people of the female gender who just are there loving and supportive and challenging in a way that's... I don't know how to say it, that's... Because I don't want to... I got to watch all the gender words now. I don't want to get in trouble. But that's a feminine, like... Uh, nurturing way, the way women nurture and also the way women confront, which tends to be a little bit different than the way guys confront. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think we, the things that, that kind of keep women out are the things that once they get in, benefit them. Absolutely. You said that so well. <laughs> and, well, because you get a bunch of women together and talking about their recovery and they, 
they don't one up each other with crazy stories generally the way men do. Yeah, although the we ego. do have I a lot there's of there's not ego. as much ego. There's more. Oh, this is what I did. Oh, you need to check out this meeting. Oh, more support. More support. Yes. But you know, as far as some of the unique challenges of women that I found, even just in terms of alcoholism itself, which are scary, is the fact that women have a different physical constitution. Yes. And so uh, I had interviewed women from my book who, they didn't start drinking until their 30s, but when they did start drinking, it was ugly. And it progressed very, very, very rapidly, and it's called a telescoping phenomenon. And it's something that sometimes women will, it's another reason why women will sometimes question their own alcoholism, because they're like, but I was fine. When I was in high school, college, you know, when I was a new mom or this and that. And then all of a sudden I started drinking and it just took off. And so it's hard for them to wrap their brain around what is this. Um, The other piece is that they can progress into alcoholism even if they're drinking and starting at a a regular age. Like higher risk is is before 15. But um, because of their metabolism because of body fat, fat body fat content, um, estrogen, water, estrogen, liver. hormones. So there's a lot that makes women more at risk for developing um, alcohol use disorders. Men, I think if you, you they kind of know their deal around their 20s and 30s of what their relationship is to alcohol. Um, women, it's actually up for debate longer uh, because it can just sort of take off. I've had life. so many examples of that in my practice that women who've Maybe had a couple of episodes or times in their life where they drink right. too much, like in college or whatever, but then have a, have a loss in midlife, either divorce or empty nest or health marital crisis, issues, yeah. marital issues, and suddenly as the telescoping just hits, they are overnight unable to control their use. And it is really confusing because their AA story doesn't fit too when they go to meetings and they hear people talk about, oh, the first time I drank, I fell in love, whatever. Well, that's a particular type of alcohol and some women are like that. Right. But many, many women are not come and emerge in, well, midlife, I would say 30s yeah. and up after a period of emotional crisis right. or loss and boom. Yeah. And they show the alcoholic behavior. More of the self-medicating. And the, you know, the other piece is that women's nature is sometimes, depending on the woman, um, caretaking and caring for others and helping others. And so part of recovery and part of um, getting treatment is about focusing on yourself and self-care. And it can be really, really challenging. I think a huge portion of the work we do in our women's recovery group is around encouraging um, women and mothers to, and working mothers, and um, to think of themselves and to put themselves in their own recovery first. And that's a, that's another barrier to, well, what am I getting, what's everyone else going to do if I go away to treatment? What, what are my, what are my kids going to do? What's my spouse going to do? What's my partner going to do? Like without me to help. And it's like, well, uh, if you're, you know, if your battery depletes, then you're not going to be helping anybody. And that's something that I, I find to be an ongoing challenge with with women, yeah, not feeling men, guilt. Men's big thing is work. Like, uh oh, how is this going to affect my job? my job? But women, and many, of course, many, many women are working and taking care of children and a family. And they're main, you're so right. The main focus is usually what is my family going to do without me? So it's like the selfish versus self care, which we always have to talk about. And it's something that they learn over time. Like, it doesn't matter if you're in recovery or not. If you're taking care of that many people, you need to recharge your battery, period. So, you know, some of these are life skills that are beyond just having an addictive issue. Right, and I actually think that it, it these are cultural issues, the self-care issue for right. women in general, but I think it's really magnified by addiction. 
Mm-hmm. So I because you need it. You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. That's right. Recovery is kind to. of that blessing That's in right. disguise where you lose the power of choice. And I actually have clients that they have a, something to blame it on in a, in a good way. Like, you know, basically their family is allowing and permissive and supportive of their getting to meetings and to therapy and to exercise or whatever it is they need to do because they they want to support that person's recovery and they have something to pin it on. But for when they don't have an addictive issue or a mental health issue or something to pin it on, they I think they sometimes have a harder, even a harder time, like, taking that time. Right, because I think this is still true. It's 2015 when we're making this podcast. When men take care of themselves, it's respected. Mm. When women take care of themselves, sometimes it's labeled as selfish. And that's, that's just a huge cultural problem um, because self-care is unselfish in that if I take care of myself, then I have the energy, the time, the ability to take care of others and I'll be healthier, I'll live longer, I won't drain the healthcare system. I mean, there's a whole lot of other issues about self-care. Let me suggest something, Sarah. Why do you say that we do a part two to this um, where we talk a little bit more about um, maybe the barriers and the hope for women in recovery? Because I think like you write a lot about it and you speak a lot about it. I'm learning every day from my clients, especially women in midlife who maybe have come into recovery and also are going through a divorce mm. or like major life challenges. And I think it's like a special group. Juggling. Really tough because especially if their addiction has either contributed to the loss of their right. marriage or the loss of their marriage and their right. family or even empty nests has contributed to their um, finally getting treatment. Um, I, I feel like, and it, it breaks my heart, but I know quite a few women who died of alcoholism around midlife when these things hit and just didn't get the right kind of help. And I feel like there's this unique subgroup of women that midlife, if they get the right kind of loving, empathic, mm. you know, help, get to have another life, get to have an act two that's absolutely fabulous and better than, better than their act one for most people. But I just feel like, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. uh, I do. It's, you know, they start to be liberated in many ways because they are out from, they're forced to to not people please and keep everyone else happy while they're depleting themselves. All right, let's make that part two, okay? Okay. My dear. It's a deal. So we are, this one wasn't that funny because it's a serious issue because we love helping women. But we laugh a lot in women's recovery. We do. We do. We laugh, 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 laugh. Okay, this is... Liz Driscoll Jorgensen and Sarah Ambetton signing off, the Sober Chicks from Insight Counseling, reminding you to take your recovery very seriously, but not yourselves too seriously.